listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. It's Friday morning on March 20th, 2020, here in Seoul, where I'm sitting, but it's the evening of Thursday, March 19th, in Washington, D.C., where joining me via Skype is my guest today, Jessica Lee of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, to talk about U.S.-North Korea relations and much more. Jessica Lee is a senior research fellow on East Asia at the Quincy Institute, a new think tank that seeks to promote ideas that move U.S. foreign policy away from endless war and toward vigorous diplomacy in the pursuit of international peace. She focuses on the Korean Peninsula, Japan, as well as U.S. foreign policy in East Asia. Previously, Jessica led the Council on Korean Americans, a national non-profit organization of Korean American leaders, and before that, she was a resident fellow of at the Pacific Forum CSIS in Honolulu. She's also worked at a consulting firm founded by Kurt Campbell called the Asia Group LLC and as a congressional staff member for six years. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thank you so much. All right, let's start by uh, talking about the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Some listeners may not have heard of it before. What is it and why was it founded? Excellent. Well, it's great to be here with you, Jacko. Thank you for the generous introduction. Um, The Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is a new think tank, as you mentioned, that opened in Washington, D.C. at December of last year. So uh, we are uh, quite new. And so I expect most of your listeners to not be all that aware of who we are and what we're about. So it's great to be able to talk to you about us, uh, about Quincy. Um, so we're a think tank that, you know, um, as the name suggests, uh, you know, we were inspired in large part by John Quincy Adams and his speech in 1821 when he was Secretary of State, in which he said, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And by that, he meant that U.S., um, United States, you know, we uh, should set an example uh, that other countries wish to emulate um, and that uh, we should build a strong country here at home rather than um, look for trouble abroad. And so, you know, some people mistake the Quincy Institute for being isolationist or non-interventionist. But as, you know, our uh, tagline that you read (laughs) aptly describes, we actually think that the United States uh, should engage the world more vigorously, uh, but not through military means, principally through diplomacy. Uh, and just greater connectivity, um, you know, with other countries. And so um, that's what we're about. We uh, have about 15 full-time staff members um, and uh, we are just getting started. Our new uh, CEO of the organization, Laura Lampe, will be starting in a few days as well. And so um, our goal is to really uh, create policy ideas and recommendations for American policymakers here in Washington uh, that really centers our foreign policy more toward diplomatic engagement rather than uh, military uh, involvement. And how is it funded? It's a great question. Uh, so we, uh, some uh, some of our co-founders started working, um, I think, beginning of last year in 2019 to solicit funds from a diverse group of um, uh, foundations, uh, mostly, as well as individuals. Individuals who believe that this idea of of war being an exception and not the norm in U.S. foreign policy is a transpartisan issue uh, that it should have bipartisan support. So we have uh, support from uh, very ideologically diverse uh, organizations, including the Charles Koch Institute and Open Society Foundation, uh, which are that's quite uh, diverse. That is quite diverse. Exactly. One is uh, sort of libertarian, and and one is uh, George Soros. Is it not? That's exactly right. So Charles Koch and George Soros uh, don't typically see eye to eye on many things, but. But 
uh, on this one issue, uh, they uh, felt fairly strongly that we mm. needed to, uh, you know, create a little more space for intellectual discussion and debate in Washington about uh, war and peace. Well, well done to whoever is in charge of uh, soliciting donations on bringing those two different sides together. Um, does the Quincy Institute have a, a stance on, on war and when war is justified? That's a great question. So we, you know, on our website state that we stand for a couple of core principles, uh, like responsible statecraft. You know, what does that even mean, mm. right? Um, so we try to uh, spell that out by saying that responsible statecraft uh, is one that serves public interest, and it's one that engages the world, builds a peaceful world, uh, and rejects war. Uh, but to your question about, you know, when is maybe war necessary, right? When when does uh, military uh, become uh, a need. Um, you know, I, I think that's something Which that... Which is a question, I should say, that mankind has been struggling with since at least the time of uh, yes. St. Augustine of Hippo, who wrote about, uh, you exactly. know, a, a justified war. So, yeah, please exactly. do go on. Exactly. So a very challenging question, uh, indeed, and one that uh, many people have grappled over. But, you know, what we believe, I think, uh, needs to be part of, uh, you know, how we define war and and military intervention is, you know, the United States uh, political system is founded in the principle of divided, uh, separated, uh, you know, checks and balances and different branches of government, um, you know, having different authorities. And so, you know, one of the things that I believe very strongly, particularly from, you know, uh, having worked in Congress, is that Congress as an institution uh, plays a vital role in checking the presidency, uh, in making sure uh, that we don't have an imperial president that takes us to war whenever he or she wants, uh, that there's a sufficient public debate and understanding and support uh, by its elected leaders in the House and the Senate. Um, now, that's all theoretical. And we see in, in you know year 2020 that what I just laid out, um, you know, uh, it, it seems that we've, you know, perhaps veered a little bit away from that. Uh, but in theory, uh, disc- matters of war and peace, you know, sending our men and women uh, abroad to fight wars uh, needs to be debated and, and approved uh, by Congress, which is the sole branch of government that, that has that authority. Uh, and so we believe that, you know, as we bring, you know, as we remind the public and, and the legislative branch of that fact, that we can have more robust discussions and that there will be a higher bar uh, set for military intervention, which should ultimately be decided by the American taxpayers uh, and American people, right? Uh, many of whom will, will be fighting and, and supporting that war either on the front line or through taxes. So putting it back in the hands of Congress and taking it out of executive power, is that sort of more or less the way you see it? Well, I mean, I think that's that's a critical, uh, you know, aspect, uh, you know, and, and perhaps a, 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 a uh, an explanation for, you know, why in the past uh, decade, mm. right, we've seen, I think, in American public that has uh, become quite disillusioned uh, about, you know, our uh, events in the Middle East, whether, um, you know, it's in Iraq uh, or in Afghanistan, where there wasn't uh, uh, sufficient uh, information uh, and truth telling uh, about why we were doing what we were doing. And so, you know, uh, we, we've been in Afghanistan uh, for, you know, for, for almost two decades. And it, and it's just cost so much blood and treasure uh, of the United States that I think when you look at, you know, some of the recent examples of American military intervention, um, you know, it, it is no wonder uh, that, you know, uh, some of uh, our philanthropists and, and other here in Washington are also asking the question of, you know, when when is it justifiable for the United States to, you know, get involved militarily and when is it not? 
let's talk about other tools, right, of, of foreign policy uh, that have been used over centuries to influence our interests and our, you know, um, and build relationships and partners around the world. And so I think we need to have a more balanced uh, foreign policy toolbox that, you know, doesn't ask the Pentagon to do everything uh, because it can't. Uh, and, and instead really uh, revitalize uh, other you know, components of, of American diplomacy. Now, there are a lot of think tanks in uh, D.C. You're the newest one that I know of, but we've had some people on the podcast before from uh, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute. Um, you may know Doug Bandau, who's uh, called for uh, American withdrawal from the Korean Peninsula, the Nautilus Institute, not based in D.C. Sometimes it's hard to keep track of them all and their positions. Uh, in a piece in The Nation in July last year, David Cleon, one of that progressive weekly magazine's editors, wrote a piece about Quincy Institute even before its uh, official launch in which the subtitle was The Quincy Institute Will Attempt to Radically Rewrite the D.C. Foreign Policy Playbook. Can you help me to broadly sketch out how Quincy plans to do that and where it situates itself in the field of existing policy influences in the USA? You know, I would say, you know, as a as a young organization, we are, uh, I would say, still figuring some of that out. Um, certainly, we have a lot of uh, work to do in terms of um, really, you know, understanding the goals and uh, objectives of, of some of the established leading think tanks uh, in Washington that you just named, uh, as well as uh, folks who are not part of uh, the, the D.C. discourse, right? Uh, people who are, you know, engaged in, uh, you know, community organizing, um, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations that have tremendous reach with, you know, constituents and, and American public uh, and have a good sense of, you know, where the public is on some of these big issues, whether it's the Korean Peninsula or, you know, Iran or so forth. So, you know, I think um, there's plenty of work to be done, uh, you know, right now by Quincy Institute to really get a good sense of the landscape. But I will say in general, you know, we uh, believe that, um, you know, there there are some, you know, I think in the perhaps the neoconservative camp that, uh, you know, sees American intervention as an inherently good thing and that the more of it we do, the better. I think, if, you know, Quincy Institute was created in some respect to kind of check that instinct mm -hmm. uh, and to question that. Um, and so, you know, what what we're going to be looking at principally is is really, you know, figuring out what are uh, sort of Americans core foreign policy priorities, you know, in the Middle East and East Asia, which are the two regions that we'll cover. And, you know, what is the sort of the broader security environment in those regions? And how do we, you know, derive uh, a policy uh, that fits and serves our priorities and our interests, uh, but are also consistent with, you know, the the, the realities on the ground. Um, and so what that has meant for me and my work on East Asia has been to, first of all, uh, get a good handle on what um, the U U.S. government's uh, stated priorities are in the region and to really question, you know, why those priorities uh, exist uh, and then uh, and unpack them as much as possible. Um, mm. Is it political? Is it domestic? You know, wh who is the audience? You know, what is it attainable? You know, all of that. Uh, and then I also, you know, talk a lot with with regional experts and folks who uh, regional scholars and visiting folks, you know, in Washington who, uh, you know, are from East Asia uh, and write extensively and, and, you know, have opinions as well about, you know, U.S. engagements in the last two decades. And so I think from those two things of, of a I'm able to kind of, you know, derive a sense of, OK, what is realistic uh, and what is uh, perhaps 
unrealistic, at least in the in the short to medium run, uh, you know, for the United States to achieve? And what are ways in which we can strengthen ties uh, with Asian countries so that we can, you know, be uh, be, be relevant? Uh, because I think part of my concern is that, you know, on issues like North Korea, that you know, we have, you know, been so uh, fixated on this long term goal of denuclearization that other countries are sort of looking past us uh, in some respect to try to find, you know, creative solutions that gets us out of basically impasse. Right. And so, you know, trying to figure Actually, out. Let me what just jump in like. here and ask you, does sure. Quincy Institute have a stance on U.S. military intervention in Korea, both historical and present day? I mean, is it that should the U.S. military uh, get out? Is, is that uh, one of your policy platforms or is it OK to stay here as long as the Korean government welcomes it? You know, basically, how does that sit? Sure. No, we haven't yet set that uh, kind of policy uh, stance um, to date. But, um, you know, I, I think there are some questions that we're asking as a team in terms of, you know, U.S. Base bases around the world, U.S. troop levels uh, in various parts of the, the world, and asking questions about, you know, is that something that is sustainable? Is that something American people want? Uh, is that something that's within our, you know, uh, core national security interest? Uh, and so on and so forth. So I, I do think that we will uh, have uh, a more kind of clearly defined positions on, you know, say, U.S. troops in South Korea or Japan. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an interesting and very, you know, uh, important uh, discussion that many people have had, uh, as you know, because it's so controversial. Right. I mean, if, if you say, yeah, U.S. troops should leave. I mean, that seems to, you know, that's very irresponsible in my mind uh, to suggest uh, I don't think that's uh, what, you know, uh, South Korea or Japan want. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it seems to me like it would be an extreme position with very little political regional support. Um, and so uh, it's not so much that, you know, I think Quincy would land there, but it's not also not the case that, you know, Quincy would say, well, yeah, let, let's just stay there indefinitely and just kind of, you know, see how it goes. I mean, I think there are some legitimate questions that we should be asking uh, and I hope that we can provide that platform. How does uh, U.S. government policy get made on, uh, let's say, North Korea denuclearization specifically, but also the Korean Peninsula a, a bit more broadly? And how do you feel that process can best be influenced by organizations like your own? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I, I, I worked in the House of Representatives, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, back in 2008. Um, and so I, I served in a committee um, mm. as well as for a member of Congress uh, from Washington State. And so I got to see from congressional perspective. You've seen you know, how the how, sausage is made. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Thank you for putting it. Yes. So clearly <laughs> I was going to say something a little more diplomatic. diplomatic but yes, yeah. it, it is quite a mess. So how does process. it get made then? What goes into it? Is it just somebody pops up into a committee with an idea and that eventually becomes right. a draft bill? Is that how it works? Well, you know, that, you know, back in again, this was ancient history. But back in 2008, um, you know, I, I it was things were a little more bipartisan, first of all. Mm. Um, and secondly, you know, this was right around um, right before uh, President Obama uh, came into office. And so I think there was a lot of excitement about his vision for Asia uh, and the rebalance or the pivot. Um, and, you know, I was oh, personally very supportive uh, of, you know, um, his aspirations and, 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 you know, the outlook that he had uh, for Asia to uh, to for United States to kind of be a Pacific nation again. Uh, I thought that was incredibly powerful and also uh, very fitting, given how important Asia Pacific region is uh, for the rest of the world. So, but, you know, to your question about how these policy, you know, decisions in Washington get made, I mean, that we would need another hour to talk about ah. that. But, you know, I think, you know, the, what what's relevant to this conversation is, 
Congress does not make foreign policy, right? It's always it's the executive branch. Uh, yet Congress controls the budget, and so they there's a dance and. You know, the executive branch has to make sure that certain uh, members of Congress and in leadership and in various committees in particular have access to, you know, information about their policies, whether it's domestic or foreign policy. I mean, that just would make sense. Right. Like if you don't share information, how are they going to know uh, what what questions to ask and what how they're how the taxpayer money is being spent? Uh, but I think over time, um, it has become you know increasingly difficult for Congress to play that oversight role. Uh, because the administration, uh, you know, Democratic and Republican, I mean, let, let's, you know, be honest. I mean, I, I think the executive branch has always felt like it was their prerogative to set the foreign policy and that Congress really played a secondary role. Um, and so you have a situation now in which members of Congress and key staff that I've spoken with, you know, on North Korea issue in particular, I uh, feel like they're locked out. Um, they are not privy to information uh, in, a, on a time, in a timely manner. Um, you know, they don't know the status of, you know, various negotiations and, and what what is what is United States offering, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's it's very you know worrisome to me uh, that, you know, uh, some of these uh, folks uh, in power uh, feel like they don't have enough details to ask the right questions uh, and, and, and be a co-equal partner. And that's um, and how so, you can influence them by giving that information to make the right questions? Well, I, I, I hope so. I mean, we will do our part to, you know, distill as much as possible, uh, you know, what's noise and what's fact, you know, what, where we think U.S. government should head. You know, where where are the opportunities that U.S. should, uh, you know, exploit uh, and, and, you know, explore? Um, you know, I, I think th those are all things that, you know, good think tanks, uh, you know, do. Right. Um, I think it's also, uh, you know, unusual for a uh, think tank to be avowedly committed to, you know, partnering with advocacy organizations. And that's very clear in our website, you know, the fact that we're an action based organization. So what that's going to mean for us is. Not only are we going to be producing, you know, hopefully uh, good, timely, you know, uh, analyses, uh, we also want to get them to the right people who are connected to the right groups and constituents uh, so that uh, our words and our recommendations could actually, you know, be considered uh, at, at the political level. Uh, because policymakers, you know, they, they, they read, you know, our stuff. I, I'm sure they read many reports. Uh, there's no shortage of reports on North Korea in particular in Washington. So, you know, it, 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 there's still so much out there. I mean, the, the question becomes, you know, who has influence at the end of the day, right? It's the ones who have their representatives testifying on the Hill. It's the ones who have access to members of Congress and top policymakers, you know, behind closed doors and can really tell them what's what and to, um, you know, really be a player. So I, I think, you know, all of that will uh, take time to build, of course. Um, we're, like I said, very new. Um, so uh, we have a lot, a long way to go. But I, I think, you know, we, hopefully we can get to that place. Now, you previously worked in the Korean American community. Uh, what are the politics of the Korean American community as it pertains to uh, the division on the Korean Peninsula and the, the nuclear crisis? As an immigrant group, do they tend to support, you know, one side more than the other? Are there 
competing voices. Is there much debate? Those are all very difficult questions, but I will yeah, try I know we to could spend them. an entire hour just on that. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. I do hope exactly. to one day. I think it's an interesting topic. <laughs> yes, this should be a different uh, episode, definitely. Um, but that's an excellent question. Uh, those are excellent questions. There's about 1.8 million Korean Americans in the United States. Wow, and okay. so, of course, they're going to have, you know, it's a diverse group, just like any other group. Um but I would say, you know, in general, Korean Americans that I've worked with, at least uh, during my previous job, you know, by and large, feel a little bit shy about talking about foreign policy issues unless they're, you know, in in the field, right, mm. in government. I mean, but, you know, so they tend not to they, they tend to be somewhat reluctant to share ideas. But it's also very clear to me that, you know, whether you're like my parents generation that, you know, were born in the Korean War period or younger folks, you know, folks in their 20s and 30s who are seeing, you know, their grandmothers and grandfathers die before they can meet their cousins or brothers and sisters in North Korea. It's actually a really strong personal emotional connection to the issue. They just don't have the proper outlet and the proper language, I think, to, you know, feel like they can have a have a difference. Right. Um, and so a lot of it is storytelling. A lot of it, you know, is about those personal journeys. But I would say, you know, on, on the North Korea issue and, and the policy things that we're discussing, um, it. I remember back in, uh, it was it 2017, where uh, Senator Lindsey Graham had said, well, if a war broke mm. out, the Korean Peninsula fly over there. So, you know, don't worry about us. Um, and so that was, I think, a, a wake up call for many of, of us here in the United States. And so that certainly galvanized me and, and you know, uh, people across the country that I've met who said, you know, I, I kind of thought that this was not an issue that, you know, I had any expertise in talking about, but we should definitely make sure United States doesn't start a war with North Korea, because it sounds like that's actually, you know, um, kind of a possibility. And so that's uh, a lot of what I heard uh, that, you know, and I've met conservative Republicans and, and very liberal, uh, you know, uh, Korean Americans uh, across the spectrum. But they all, I think, fundamentally uh, oppose uh, any kind of preventive war a la, you know, Iraq uh, that would, you know, cause tremendous, um, you know, pain and suffering uh, to, to both sides uh, of the 30th parallel. Now, uh, back on January 8th, you had a piece entitled, Could Donald Trump Use the State of the Union Speech to Change Course on North Korea, which was published in the National Interest, a uh, bi-monthly international affairs magazine. Your piece, uh, of course, for our listeners, uh, they can find it on uh, the Quincy Institute's webpage at quincyinst.com. Dot org. Now, why did you choose a magazine described as alternatively realist or neoconservative to publish your piece? That's an interesting choice. Yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, to my earlier point about transpartisanship or, you know, bipartisanship, uh, I think it's really important for Quincy Voices to be uh, heard in uh, various outlets, whether it's liberal, conservative. Um, and, you know, um, I, I think uh, the the national interest uh, presented a, a great opportunity uh, because I, I believe they were actually running a series of, of pieces um, and uh, had, you know, invited a couple of various experts to, to chime in. And uh, so, you know, for me, it was a no brainer. Uh, they have highly regarded scholars uh, there who do Korea work. Uh, and so for me, I, I felt like this would be a good chance to uh, share my ideas with with a different audience. Uh, but, you know, ironically, as you know, uh, President Trump didn't mention North Korea no. once, State of the Union. So 
I was uh, quite disappointed, uh, but I think it still uh, behooves us to, you know, ask these questions about what American presidents should be talking about, uh, given the the high stakes diplomacy that had previously been involved, uh, that he has been previously involved in. Now, your final sentence of that piece, uh, and I'll read it out, now more than ever before, U.S. leaders must show that the United States will choose the path of dialogue and diplomacy with North Korea. Uh, would you agree that the U.S. has more or less been showing that since at least the Pyeongchang Olympics? I mean, I, I think, you know, President Trump, d- during his term in office, it's he's made North Korea diplomacy a priority. But I think what I have found frustrating uh, is that, you know, there's uh, the, diplomacy is, 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 is quite a vague word, right? Unless you're a diplomat yourself, uh, most people, I, I don't think, actually know what diplomacy means. But one uh, way to describe it would be, you know, we have a situation right now where uh, two heads of states, right, um, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, have engaged in this uh, heads of state level dip- uh, diplomacy or dialogue, mm-hmm. right? What has come out of it uh, has unfortunately uh been very little uh, to my disappointment um, and to many, I think, uh, who have watched this process. And so the question becomes why, right? If he's already, if they've already agreed to talk so many times and met in person, mm. why are we still at this place? And I believe the the answer to that question is because, you know, diplomacy actually is is really hard. It involves not just heads of state photo ops and, and meetings and pageantry, but it actually involves uh, mid-level uh, bureaucrats and, and policy experts uh, to come together and actually uh, map out a plan that, you know, is signed off by the heads of staff in, in a very uh, perfunctory way. Uh, and so uh, that's, that middle step seems to be missing. Um, and the problem, I think, is United States keeps saying, hey, we want to talk. Let's talk. The door is open, right? Uh, you know, Steve Began has said this a number of times publicly. Many came other to Korea to say that most recently. That's exactly right. So it's not that, you know, United States have said we don't want to talk. It's that, you know, from North Korea's perspective, the question is, are we going to actually make progress or are we going to be arguing about the same thing over and over again? And I think that where the tension lies is the fact that the United States, particularly the Congress, uh, has not shown much interest in changing our, uh, you know, changing our sanctions, which is a big uh, issue, or changing the security environment um, and, 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 you know, giving North Korea a sense that, look, the Korean war is in the past, we're going to look to the future. So none of the things have really fundamentally changed in the U.S. foreign policy. But, you know, we are talking about, you know, talking to North Korea as though all of these things are uh, up in up for grabs, and they're actually not. Uh, you know, United States, uh, I think, as you can see in the Iran example as well, there, you know, our country is not really good at taking sanctions back. Uh, and some of these punitive measures are really hard to lift, uh, even partially. And so we're talking about a situation that is going to require a very strong leadership Um you know, by the president to really fundamentally question the entire, you know, uh, premise of U.S. North Korea relationship. Um, and so, if President Trump wants to, you know, uh, have a win, right? And I think all along, like he was hoping this would be, you know, a win uh, for his legacy. You know, I would say that um, he should, you know, weigh and pressure his uh, Republican colleagues in in Congress to say, look. 
the only way we're truly going to turn a corner on U.S. North Korea relations is if we are going to be willing to put everything on the table. And I know that's heretic to say in some corners in Washington, but there's just no other conceivable, realistic way for North Korea to you know, negotiate with a country that has set in stone its policy. And, you know, any change will be so uh, politically difficult. So uh, in short, I, I think, you know, uh, I, I support, you know, what President Trump is trying to do, but I think he needs to uh, really uh, shore up far more resources uh, for his mid-level diplomats to have something to work on. Uh, and that's going to require a lot of uh, political capital on his part to use uh, because uh, Washington uh, is not uh, going to wake up tomorrow and, um, you know, uh, take some, uh, you know, even offer partial sanctions relief uh, without, you know, uh, some some serious, uh, you know, pressure uh, from the president uh, and, and advocacy. I mean, the good news about this issue, uh, if I can add, is that there's actually a, a, a tremendous amount of support uh, for, you know, uh, improving relations with North Korea by some of the most uh, hard-nosed pe- experts, <laughs> and we're talking about like arms control experts, non-proliferation, you know, uh, folks, say hacker. I mean, these are, you know, people with serious uh, expertise in nuclear science, uh, nu- nuclear technology, um, who believe that, you know, diplomacy is the only way to go. Uh, and that part of talking to countries you don't agree with is being willing to compromise. Uh, and so I think that uh, is is what, uh, you know, President Trump should offer. I, I don't know that he has that in mind at this point of his presidency, but uh, that's certainly something I would like to see. Now, last week you had an opinion piece published on our website, nknews.org, titled How Landmine Removal on the Korean Peninsula Could Help Build Much-Needed Trust. Uh, I found it interesting that you chose the recently successful South Korean drama series about a romance between a Chebol heiress and a North Korean soldier crash landing on you. Why did you choose this device to bookend your op-ed, and what do you think of the show? Yes, well, I very much enjoyed the show, as I hope you and others listening uh, have done as uh, have as well. I, I thought it was the, the acting and the script, um, and and most of all, uh, it was one of the only shows that I uh, watched in recent years where, you know, my kind of professional interest um, at research, uh, you know, married. Uh, basically, you know, Korean drama fantasy world, which uh-huh. uh, bears very little resemblance to my day to day life. Um, otherwise, so it was fascinating on a number of levels. Um, and I chose that uh, drama because I, I thought, first of all, it, it did so well. Uh, <laughs> even you know, my non Korean friends are watching it on Netflix. That I thought it would you know draw uh, some new audiences to you know my my writing. Um, and second of all, I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about landmines uh, because the, the the whole show is, uh, you know, obviously uh, grappling with this this question of a divided Korea. And so, you know, I I, I thought that um, it would be an interesting way to uh, to talk about this uh, historical issue um, and and to bring some uh, shine some light onto this little known you know, policy change uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, that I alluded to in the piece from January 31st, in which, um, you know, the ban on, on the use of uh, landmines uh, are now uh, lifted. And so you uh, have, you know, what 
uh, experts call a weapon of mass destruction in slow motion <laughs> uh, now being uh, more uh, acceptable. And I think that's quite problematic. And I think the Korean Peninsula, uh, you know, shows why uh, that's the case. So uh, what basically is your argument about this? Is it that there should be no more new landmines or that the existing ones should be removed or both? Well, I think it's it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think my primary goal was to just educate, you know, the readers about uh, this uh, particular U.S. policy that uh, had sort of a carve out. Um, so basically there there was a ban, um, you know, on, on the use of landmines, but it, it was allowed in the Korean Peninsula. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. general at the time wanted it uh, to protect South Korea. And so the question is, you know, why is what is this weapon, you know, and why does it matter? And why does the international community ban it uh, over nearly 170 countries oppose using landmines? Um, and so, you know, I, I just wanted to mainly shine light on, on you know, that uh, aspect of, of U.S. history, how deadly this weapon is uh, and how indiscriminate it is in killing uh, ordinary people. Uh, and how, um, you know, United States should uh, revisit this policy. Apart from, you know, uh, yes, you, you did mention that Donald Trump uh, reversed the policy of the U.S. And, and allowed the use of landmines, but we don't actually see uh, any plans to lay new ones. So why make this an issue now? Well, I think, you know, it's, I mean, the, 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 the landmines in the Korean Peninsula have been there, uh, you know, since and after the Korean War, and they were laid there by American and South Korean forces. So, you know, those are there. Uh, there's a, a, nearly a million of them. Uh, but, you know, my concern is that this weapon would be used elsewhere uh, without uh, any kind of regard for their long longevity. And so, I, you know, I make the case that, you know, what United States allow and doesn't allow in, in warfare, you know, speaks to our own ethical norms and, and our values. And so, you know, this uh, by using an internationally banned weapon, it sends the wrong message about uh, American priorities and, and regard for uh, human life. And so I think uh, that's why. Uh, this is a, a problem uh, that more people need to be talking about. Now, the demilitarized zone uh, forms a de facto border between the two Koreas, and the Korean War, of course, is famously not technically over. So aren't there some preconditions that would need to be fulfilled first before you can remove landmines from in and around the DMZ? Sure. I mean, I think the, the security environment in the DMZ is such that, you know, uh, at this stage, uh, any kind of drastic removal could be misinterpreted. Um, and so uh, one of the things I note in my piece is that, you know, rather than have a show about, you know, lovers in in the two Koreas, maybe we should be talking about how to clear landmines uh, through um, inter-Korea cooperation uh, and that, um, you know, kind of reciprocal step-by-step -step measure by both countries to clear the landmines uh, could be uh, much more uh, effective in, you know, bringing reconciliation and healing uh, and understanding between the two countries than, you know, this this show uh, and, and this um, possibility of, of people falling in love <laughs> from, uh, you know, which is obviously very uh, difficult to imagine in the real world. But I think those are the types uh, that kind of demining project, you know, could be really helpful. There was one in 2018. And there, uh, I think, uh, should be more of that to kind of build confidence between the two countries. Yes, you're right. There were indeed uh, famously mines removed from the whole joint security area at Panmunjom uh, in 2018. Um, and also, uh, 
perhaps a little bit forgotten now, but uh, almost 20 years ago, during the time of South Korean President Kim Dae-jung, landmines were removed from both the eastern and western transport corridors in order to create road and rail links between North and South Korea. Uh, so, and, and that whole project of building cross-DMZ uh, transportation corridors was also a confidence-building measure uh, supported by both South Korea and the U.S. Those areas haven't been remined since then, even though some, uh, you know, some confidence was lost. Uh, and, and those corridors are not currently in use. But what would be the value added of now removing all landmines from within the demilitarized zone and also the areas to the south of it uh, when you know we've, we've tried some of these confidence-building measures that, that maybe haven't built enough confidence? There, the, the issue is, is much broader than inter-Korea cooperation and inter-Korea confidence, as you know. Um, this is part of a larger... Uh, dilemma right now in, in terms of, you know, how the North Korean nuclear issue is going to be resolved and whether, you know, the Korean War will ever end. Um, is, is, are we going to have two Koreas, you know, divided on the 30th parallel forever? Is there, is there anything that could change, um, you know, uh, the situation on the ground so that both Koreas feel secure? I think the United States has a big role uh, to play in, in, in a constructive role to play in, in figuring that out. Um, I think most uh, Korean people, uh, you know, uh, um, on, on a fundamental uh, kind of personal uh, individual level feel like, you know, they're part of a divided nation. Uh, and so it, I think it, it poses a lot of uh, really challenging questions about, you know, what does it mean to end the Korean War? And what would that look like? Um, you know, a lot has been written about whether it would be, you know, a two divided Koreas forever. Uh, but sort of, you know, the it wouldn't be as fortified uh, along the 30th parallel so that there could be more movement between the two countries and less accidental deaths. Um, or would it be, you know, a unified uh, Korea? I mean, I think the latter um, is much uh, more difficult for me to personally envision, uh, just given uh, the current state of things, I think it would be more uh, of a divided situation, but perhaps, um, you know, steps toward normalizing relations and North Korea becoming more uh, part of the international community, uh, maybe. But that would, uh, I mean, I, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but that would certainly involve uh, a mutual recognition of the legitimacy of each North Korea by the other. Oh, sorry, each Korea by the other Korea, right? And at the moment, as we know, of course, since 1948, uh, both Korean states claim sovereignty over the entire Korean peninsula. Uh, and to change from that and say, okay, we're going to accept the other Korea and just remain on this side of the demilitarized zone, that would be such a, uh, a bold and, and game-changing move. But that would be, I think, perhaps something that might be a prerequisite for actually recognizing the demilitarized zone as a fixed border and removing landmines. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Neither Korea is saying, hey, let's recognize each other's systems. I don't think there's any incentive uh, to do so. And I think that's part of the problem. Uh, I think the, the, the status quo is is a status quo for, uh, for, for a reason. And it's because people are set uh, on their belief that they're, like you said, the rightful sort of uh, sovereign, you know, nation for the whole peninsula, uh, and that there's just no way that they can yield to the other side to be a legitimate and sovereign leader of half of it. Uh, but I, I mean, I think what I think is, is really important and, and worthy of a further examination is what do the people of the Korean peninsula want, you know, in terms of getting past the Korean War? Or are they going to live you know, in this state forever. I mean, it seems like 
uh, as this has gone on for as long as it has. Uh, certainly from my vantage point in Washington, I mean, this is, you know, the longest, technically the longest endless war that, you know, U.S. has been engaged in. Right. And our organization uh, is is very much opposed to open ended, endless wars uh, that, you know, U.S. gets embroiled in. And so, you know, the, from as an American, I, I wonder, you know, is this war ever going to end? And is there something U.S. can do uh, to contribute to a peaceful resolution and, and reconciliation? But, you know, um, it's a much harder question for me to answer in terms of, you know, what the Korean people want and how how would that process look like? Um, it's it's much harder. And you probably have a better sense because you're based out there. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, you know, where I am, um, there's still some really important questions to be asked about the current state uh, of U.S. engagement and, and posture there uh, and whether uh, we are inadvertently uh, creating more tension in the region uh, as opposed to uh, reducing it. And so those are some of the questions I'm asking. But um, again, a very difficult question, uh, I think, uh, in general. Now, I spoke uh, with a uh, retired USFK lieutenant colonel here recently, and he told me that south of the demilitarized zone, almost all of that territory uh, is currently the responsibility and under the control of uh, rock army battalions, and that's where uh, many of these existing minefields are. So uh, wouldn't your uh, the, the campaign of the Quincy Institute be better focused on asking the rock government to demine those areas rather than on the US government to put to not put you know to read to demine it well certainly uh, that that's factually very true uh the landmines that are uh on the southern side of the uh, demilitarized zone are in the uh, control of the south korean uh, military and the government uh but uh, I, I think that, you know, the the broader point that I was making about the landmines uh, and the U.S.'s use of it uh, really goes beyond telling uh, the South Koreans to remove it. I mean, that would be good, uh, but they also wouldn't do that unless something's fundamentally changed in their security. Right. And mm. so, um, you know, it goes back to the question of, well, what is the United States's role in bringing peace in the peninsula? Um and secondly, you know, what what does United States signal by using a weapon that is internationally banned uh, in, in places of conflict? Now, I think we should also remember, though, that North Korea uh, does continue to plant new landmines on its side of the demilitarized zone. And these are the uh, very uh, old technology wooden box mines uh, that uh, tend to move around in times of flood and heavy rain. Uh, the two South Korean soldiers that were maimed in 2015 were hurt by North Korean wooden box mines. Uh, would you also think that it's right to put pressure on North Korea to stop planting new landmines and to demine its own area? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the same logic holds in terms of uh, protecting human lives, lives of those who are not, you know, on the front lines of, of fighting uh, wars. I mean, th this this weapon is deadly. Uh, it lasts a very long time and, and it can kill in, in a horrific way. And so I, I completely uh, support uh, asking the North Koreans to also stop uh, using landmines and to uh, to demine uh, the ones that they've already planted. What other uh, confidence building measures uh, should North Korea perhaps engage in? You know, this is, I think, an important uh, point in that right now, part of, I think, the, the problem is that uh, United States doesn't feel like North Korea has put enough uh, on, on the table, right, in terms of uh, things that uh, it can show uh, and do uh, to assure 
American policymakers that it, it's actually uh, serious uh, about uh, improving ties and and you know being accepted in the international community. Um, but uh, and and particularly members of Congress uh, look to uh, human rights issues in particular and and the long documented, um, you know, abuses of human rights as a as a factor, uh, you know, in our policy. And so I think there is, uh, you know, as a totalitarian regime, I uh, I'm not I'm not sure that they would be uh, willing to, you know, close all gulags and, and do all of these things that I know uh, human rights activists have have long called for, even though that's the right thing to do. Um, so we should probably think more uh, in smaller terms about, you know, th- steps that they can take, uh, certain um, installations uh, that they can shut and, and uh, you know, allowing IAEA ex- inspectors in the country and, and, you know, steps like that that would, you know, certainly meet international standards in terms of assessing North Korea's nuclear capabilities, you know, allowing more people uh, to come uh, to the country and, and see uh, what is going on uh, to open its society more? I mean, these are all things that would really, I think, um, you know, give uh, Western countries and America in particular uh, a lot more confidence that North Korea, uh, you know, wants to 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 um, be more normal as a country. Uh, if there's you know, one right idea now, that uh, I can throw mm-hmm. in there, perhaps it's that sure. uh, it would be nice to uh, encourage North Korea to continue dialogue with South Korea. We've seen in the last. Uh, well, more or less since the uh, the mini summit at Panmunjom, and even a little bit before then, that uh, North Korea has done all it can to uh, ignore South Korea and to say nasty things about uh, the South Korean president and government in in their own press. And uh, I know that over the decades, because I've been rereading uh, the two Koreas recently by uh, Don Oberdorfer, that over the decades that the United States has has said to North Korea, "Hey, uh, why don't you know talk to South Korea? Because that will be a conference building measure in and of itself, and that." will lead to us to, you know, uh, to talk to you a bit more. But North Korea seems to reject that. Why do you think that is? I also agree that North Korea should talk to South Korea more. Uh, but I think they perhaps feel that, you know, for their security um, environment to improve uh, and their economic situation to improve, that the key is in talking directly with the United States. So that is unfortunate. South Korea should play more of a leading role on this issue. But I also recognize that, you know, that's perhaps not uh, something that uh, can happen um, in the immediate future. Uh, Like you said, North Korea seems to want really nothing to do with South Korea. And um, and so they are uh, really exclusively looking at the United States to, you know, uh, make progress. But um, you know, I, for one, believe that uh, United States and um, South Korea need to be in locksteps. And I think many people who work in this space agree. Uh, but also United States uh, should be more uh, vocal in South Korea's leadership role uh, and really support and encourage uh, South Korea to be more of a lead. Uh, they know this issue better than we do. They have much more at stake than we do. This is, you know, uh, this is their issue um, at the end of the day. And I think, you know, the America, U.S. can do, can get some things right, but we can get a lot of things wrong. And so it's really important that uh, the right uh, relevant stakeholders uh, decide the, the future of the Korean Peninsula. Do you believe that it's possible to know what uh, Kim Jong-un and the leadership of North Korea have as their strategic uh, mid to long term political and diplomatic goal? And and is that even, uh, you know, is that necessary to uh, to finding a path forward with North Korea? 
Those are the kinds of questions I would love to ask a North Korean uh, so I can uh, so that could inform my research. Um, but I, I think, you know, in terms of what North Korea is looking for um, in the mid to long term, it's it's unclear. I mean, books have been written about Kim Jong Un and what he plans to do. But I think for me, um, what I'm you know interested in seeing is whether under Kim Jong-un, we're going to actually see some change over time that will allow the country to be more open, uh, like China, uh, and, and really slowly change. Uh, but I, I also t- uh, wonder if uh, North Korea wants to uh, remain an adversary to the United States or actually wants more of a partnership relationship. Now, I know that's a very fraught question, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds incredibly far fetched. uh, But it's also, you know, if I were North Korean, I would be asking that question, too. Right. Because uh, I wouldn't want China to be, you know, the dominant power uh, that, you know, pushes my country around and tells me what to do and exploits my resources. I mean, there are certain benefits to, you know, uh, having a strength, stronger relationship with with a, you know, a rival power uh, like the United States. And so, you know, isn't it in North Korea's interest to diversify, uh, you know, um, and 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 have, uh, you know, various uh, relationships with with countries uh, that uh, we'll influence in the region. So from that perspective, I would think that it makes sense on a practical, pragmatic level to uh, to to improve ties with, with the United States and to try to to get out of this cycle of mistrust and animosity that has, you know, wasted a lot of people's time and, and energy. And, and I feel like nothing really uh, is changing and nobody's really willing to to move. And so despite the fresh uh, and urgent, you know, dialogue and, and, and outreach that I think the president uh, Trump has, you know, engaged in, things really haven't changed all that much. And so I'm sort of doubly disappointed that we're in this space. And I hope uh, that both sides can come to some sort of a compromise position. North Korean denuclearization, is it a viable goal? Should the U.S. keep pushing for it? I think the U.S. should keep pushing for it, but I think it should be uh, a long-term view, uh, a long-term goal, excuse me. Step by step. Step by step. Kind of like what Steve Began said in his famous Stanford speech. Uh, What, that's over a year ago now, isn't it? Gosh, maybe two years ago. Yeah, I think two years ago. And um, I, I think, yeah, I mean... You know, denuclearization, I think uh, Dr. Sighecker uh, estimated, will take more than a decade uh, to fully dismantle every single part of North Korea's nuclear system. So it's clearly not something that could be achieved, you know, the next day. Now, why in the world President Trump, 10 days after Singapore summit, said, you know, North Korea will uh, has promised full denuclearization is beyond me. Uh, but that, I think, has contributed to this sense that denuclearization is something that North Korea can just kind of switch, turn a switch on or off. That is something very simple that, um, you know, can be done instantaneously, but it's not. And so uh, we cannot put that as sort of our immediate goal and say, well, if they're not going to denuclearize everything tomorrow, what's the point? Let's let's just you know go right to regime change. So that's I think hugely problematic. Uh, and so I would I would I hope that denuclearization and the concept of you know nonproliferation treaty and all of these things uh, that make this world a safer place. Uh, continue. But I think on this case, uh, the question is far more complex and something that has to be, uh, you know, discussed more as a phased uh, approach of, okay, if denuclearization is a long term goal, what is our one to three year, uh, you know, goal, right? What's a five to 10 year goal? And how are we going to get to the five to 10 year goal, given that we are doing absolutely nothing right now to even 
to the one to three year goal. So, you know, we should be looking at it, you know, I think in stages, but that seems to not be uh, where most, you know, or or some folks, uh, you know, in Washington are. And I think that that's a mistake. Well, speaking of goals, uh, what is the one-year goal, the 2020 goal uh, for Jessica Lee at the Quincy Institute for um, Responsible Statecraft? Right now, I am. Uh, my goal is to just survive this <laughs> uh, self-quarantine. <laughs> oh, you're under the you're under lockdown as well. Well, I, I should mean, point out to our listeners that I did want to interview you uh, back in late January when I was in D.C. We're in the same city. Yes. And, and the morning of or the night before, you, you sent me a message. You said that you had caught strep throat from your daughter and wouldn't be able to, to make it to the interview. And and that was just when coronavirus was was barely peeking over the horizon for people in the U.S. They just barely heard about it as something that happened in Wuhan. Uh, and now it's, uh, you know, the United States, every state has somebody with coronavirus. New York is, is in a crisis mode. So you're in self-composed qu- uh, quarantine as well, it sounds well, like. I am. And, and it's not because I have the, you know, COVID-19. It's because, um, like you said, every single state, including Virginia, where I live, you know, we're in, um, because every, there's at least one inf- uh, case of infection, we're all, you know, gatherings, I think President Trump said of no more than 10 people will be allowed or uh, gatherings of, you know, more than 10 people will not be allowed and restaurants have all shut. I mean, it's just a ghost town. And so uh, my daughter's daycare shut, my work said don't come in. So, you know, we're all sort of <laughs> figuring out how to get, you know, get through this period of a lot of social distancing um, professionally, but not so much personally. <laughs> so no, I'm spending yeah, a lot of time with my family. <laughs> But on a more serious note, you know, in terms of some of my uh, goals for this year, you know, as I said in the beginning, it, part of, you know, Quincy's uh, impact uh, and, and usefulness will mm. really be in, you know, being uh, sort of a liaison for policymakers as well as constituents uh, and, and advocacy groups that represent their interests uh, in the foreign policy space. So getting to know, you know, the, the folks in, in both worlds, uh, I think, will be really important. I'm also working on a major paper that I'm hoping to release by August uh, that's going to look at this question of, you know, U.S.-North Korea relations and where is it headed? (laughs) You know, is it more of the same or can we expect something uh, different? If so, what would that strategy and interim steps, uh, you know, look like? And so I'm I'm, uh, working on that. I'm also trying to figure out, you know, the future of U.S. alliances in East Asia, given that. Um, you know, so much of the energy here in Washington is is placed on, you know, this concept of a great power competition between U.S. and China. And so a really important question as part of that, uh, you know, is is going to be in, in how we uh, strengthen our, um, you know, alliances and partnerships with, with countries uh, in, in the region. And so I wrote I a paper. I want to throw in uh, cost sharing for you as well, because that's a very, very, very timely Absolutely. issue here in Korea with the Korean workers at the USFK bases, pretty much about to go into imposed furlough, uh, unpaid leave uh, very, very soon. That is very painful for everybody. And I, I just can't imagine the economic impact and um, uh, that that's going to have on, on on working class people. Um, but I think, you know, on the uh, yeah. So on the alliances more broadly, you know, um, you know, I wrote a paper uh, for Quincy Institute. You can see it on our website on the U.S.-South Korea alliance and the burden sharing uh, agreement uh, in particular. And I hope to write something similar uh, on the U.S.-Japan alliance as well, given that they're dealing with similar issues with President Trump on 
you know, how much uh, they should be paying uh, for U.S. presence um, and troops there. So lot, lots to, to think about. I look forward to hopefully going to South Korea this year as well. That would be my goal uh, to to go to uh, South Korea and meet with uh, folks like you, assuming that it's safe for uh, us to uh, meet and uh, talk and, and travel. Um, you know, that would really help my my job and my work because, uh, you know, I really do uh, think that uh, there's a lot of good ideas and, and people uh, in, in the region who, um, you know, have a have a good sense of what the United States is going through and, and can offer some uh, good advice on, um, you know, how we have a, you know, more positive vision uh, for, for the United States in the region. Okay, well, that all sounds very promising. We do hope that goes ahead. It's been wonderful to talk to you today, Jessica Lee, and we, uh, thank you for your time. You've been very generous. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. And you can check out the Quincy Institute at Quincy Inst. INST.org. Did I get that correct, Jessica? .org? That's correct. Yep. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, echoes, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Unique Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. <laughs> <laughs>